Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast that we're doing with our friends at Grinnell College. I happen to be a Grinnell College grad many, many years ago when dinosaurs walked the earth. Today, I'm very pleased to say that we have Sequoia Nagamatsu on the show, and we'll be talking to him about his book, How High We Go in the Dark, which is out from William Morrow in 2020. And I'll tell you, I read some reviews of your book. Honestly, I did. And you're doing much better than I ever did. (laughs) (laughs) Sequoia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So could you begin the interview by um, telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a Grinnell College grad, uh, class of 2004. Um, I majored in anthropology. I kind of bounced around a lot, um, probably, you know, much like a lot of other college students in terms (laughs) of my major. Um, But I think even at Grinnell, I was, I think throughout my life, I've I've always been very bookish and and interested in writing. And, um, you know, I I did some volunteering for the Grinnell magazine, um, or the Grinnell review, I should say, um, when I was a student. Um, You know, I I had, you know, some short-lived writing groups, um, but I never really considered myself a writer or never seriously pursued writing then. I, I didn't think of it as a viable option, but I think after college, um, I kept going back to it. It was something that I was doing after work. Um, I started writing groups in San Francisco and, um, I, I realized that it was something that I wanted to pursue seriously. Um, I didn't ing- major in English. I didn't take many creative writing classes. I fancied myself more of a poet, actually, uh, at Grinnell. But I think, you know, once I um, had the sort of the time and space uh, to sort of really reflect on my identity as a writer and really kind of start reading more um, contemporary writers, I, I, I was I was all in. And you know, I think that time in my life was when I was working in Japan as an English teacher, um, I just really had more, I think, sort of headspace away from America um, to really just devote to to words. That's great. Thank you very much for that. It, it is quite a commitment to begin calling oneself a, a writer. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I mostly, yeah. You get questions I, when you do that. I usually just tell people I'm a professor, yeah. um, you know, to kind of avoid further questions. <laughs> so can you tell us how you ended up at Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa? Yeah, it's, um, I'm, I'm probably, I think I'm the only person from my graduating high school class to leave California. Um, so I, I went to high school in, in Silicon Valley, um, not far from Palo Alto, um, next town over in Los Altos. And as you can imagine, a lot, like a lot of Californian kids, like you're either going to a UC uh, or, or Stanford or Claremont. And the idea of even leaving California is this foreign concept. But um, I, I was very, I think, disenchanted. Um, I went to high school in the, in the, in the mid 90s um, with kind of the emerging sort of tech space. Um, it seemed like a very, it was like a very much like a bubble universe, um, that, you know, the real world didn't really exist outside of Silicon Valley. And I wanted to escape that mentality. And, um, so I was automatically looking at small colleges because I went to a small private high school and the thought of going to a big research type university horrified me. Um, I'm, you know, I'm somewhat introverted. So like, you know, I think even more so I was looking for a a tighter community, um, so I picked up a book called um, 
uh, colleges that change lives. I think Grinnell was in there at one point, um, along with some other colleges, including St. Olaf College, where I teach now. And um, I just basically applied to every school in that book and sort of similar books like that that were focused on the small private college. Um, Grinnell flew me out a couple of times and I had a really wonderful time, um, you know, with my friends fellow prospective students, prospies, as they call them at Grinnell. And um, I was sold, you know, like I, despite it being in a more rural location, despite me not knowing anything about the Midwest or Iowa, um, I, I really kind of fell in love with um, the community, sort of, I think the counterculture um, kind of social justice, sort of like mindset of the students there was something that I really appreciated. Well, I fell in love with it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and it did change my life. I can say mm-hmm. that quite honestly. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of a, a, a hard question and I'm a little bit hesitant to uh, ask it <laughs> because I know when uh, I read a lot of novels and when people ask me, what's it about? I always sort of smirk because every novel is about a lot of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but if you were sort of pinned and asked, to answer the question, what is how high we go in the dark about? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's um, in a nutshell, it's it's a multi generational journey that follows a cast of characters uh, in the aftermath of something called the Arctic Plague. So, you know, just in full disclosure, this was written before the pandemic, <laughs> um, and uh, these these journeys that follow these uh, linked characters focus primarily kind of on their everyday lives. Um, you know, even if they are scientists or people that have sort of skin in the game regarding, you know, finding a cure or finding alternatives regarding the virus or, or the climate crisis, um, the core of the novel focuses on how people find connections in their lives, how they honor their their lost loved ones, and how they sort of conceive of tragedy as this, I guess, kind of liminal space where they can reimagine their future and better versions of themselves and, and society even. And how did you come up with the, I, this is another silly question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm full of them. How'd you come up with the idea for the book? Well, I mean, I, th- I think my journey in writing this was very kaleidoscopic. Um, I, I took about, you know, um, including writing another book before this and just life, you know, about 10 years uh, from kind of the very early seeds to, to publication. Um, but, you know, the, the, the early, I guess, foundation of the novel began with, research and exploration of how people grieve in non-traditional ways, um, uh, innovative funerary practices. Um, I mentioned I was living in Japan at one point, and you know, this was kind of at the heels of grieving for my grandfather, who I had lost uh, in the early 2000s, and you know, he helped raise me. And there's a lot of guilt and drama kind of you know, revolving around that death. And, you know, living in Japan really kind of opened my eyes to how different cultures grieved loved ones and how a society like Japan, and especially in a city like Tokyo, where there's really no places to build cemeteries, you have to build up. Um, You know, so there are funerary skyscrapers, there are very sort of like tech oriented ways of sort of merging kind of the world of like temples with the world of holograms and skyscrapers and that really just fascinated me and i started to like look into other ways that people were conceiving of saying goodbye and actually giving ourselves spaces 
to grieve because, you know, the modern, I guess our modern form of death really doesn't leave much room to honor the dead. You know, you, you cry and then you have to plan a funeral and, and have to worry about finances. Um, you know, the, it's a very capitalist materialistic enterprise, um, that dying has become. Um, so I wanted to look at other ways. That's interesting. You said that about our ways of death, because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's quite accurate. I think mm-hmm. I, I know from my experience living in other places in the world, there's a tradition of visiting the, the graves of relatives mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Korean friends who do this, right? Uh, there's nothing like, the, I, well, maybe I'm wrong. Some listener will write me, but I don't visit the graves of my ancestors. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah so so uh i we can call the book speculative fiction or mm-hmm. science fiction I, sure. I don't know if you have a preference there um yeah it's i mean categories are slippery i mean you know it's in sometimes in some ways it's more of the purview of of marketing departments than writers but um i i, I, I would i would say that um speculative fiction is probably more accurate at least in terms of how readers tend to use that term where you know speculative being and again, it's an umbrella term, but um, I've seen sort of readers understand that to be science fiction or fantastical fiction that is l- literary in nature. You know, so it's kind of a merging of genres. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By the way, many people probably don't know this, but I, and I, oftentimes you don't even get to pick the title of your book. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. the marketing people are on you about yeah. that. Right. I know this is true for magazine articles. Like you yeah. don't get to decide what the... Yeah. The title of your magazine article is some marketing person or somebody in upper editorial is going to decide for you what your labor of love is going to be cost. Were there any writers that were particularly influential when you were developing a pro oh, style or coming to this? I mean, yeah, I'm just I mean, another so, silly question, I guess, because so many, yeah. I mean, the long, it was a long during writing of this, but um, I think Italo Calvino, I mean, all of his work, but particularly uh, cosmic comics, was I think an early influence for me just in terms of, you know, writing like crazy stories about the universe. Um, but also just, I think his fabulous sensibilities, um, you know, I think really kind of influenced you know, all of my work, not just this novel. Um, Jose Saramago's um, blindness and death at intervals. He's kind of like a big concept writer, like, um, yeah. I mean, blindness, I think they, they adapt into a film. So like everybody in the world kind of goes, loses their sight and kind of what happens to society, um, death at intervals, like what happens when everybody stops dying, you know, so there's, you know, explorations of, you know, what happens to the funerary funerary industry, what happens to hospitals, you know, how does our culture change when death stops? Um, and Cloud Atlas, you know, has been kind of used as an early comp for this novel for probably some obvious structural reasons. But um, I think a lot of David Mitchell's work was, I think, very informative for me when I was thinking about how to puzzle together the disparate pieces of this book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, would you call yourself a speculative fiction or a science fiction writer, or would you call uh, yourself a novelist, full stop? Well, or I do mean, you have a direction you're going? I, 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 resist, I resist categories. Um, but I mean, if I had to use a term, I, I guess speculative is, is, is as good as any. Um, I resist also calling myself a novelist because... Um, you know, I, 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 I write, I write in multiple forms, you know, and like this, you know, like calling this book a short story collection isn't right, but also calling it a novel isn't quite accurate. It's, you know, 
And and if I use the term novel and stories, like people don't know what that is, so, so we just call it a novel. Um, you know, so I think I think you know, like just labeling writers sometimes is is a little tricky, especially for somebody like me who kind of entered the world in kind of like a more more of a short story space. Um, but you know, like my stories, like even my individual stories, have been getting much much longer. And, um, you know, when I describe the narrative of the, of the, of a book like this, you can read a specific chapter and, and feel fulfilled, like it's contained, but if you were to skip around, you would miss the entire, <laughs> you would miss a through line of, of the book. Um, and, and there are a lot of, you know, a lot of my revision over the last few years, um, has revolved around kind of that kind of the connectivity and the Easter eggs and the framing, um, to kind of make the you know the book more than the sum of its parts uh-huh did you have the plot laid out before you start i know when i write sometimes uh i i end up at a very different place than um yeah I yeah for I sure um yeah i mean like for for some of the individual chapters and you know like i i, I had a pretty good idea of like where things are going to go um for the novel at large you know uh, because it was you know something that evolved over years you know it, it ended up in a very different place than than what i imagined um, at the beginning. And, you know, just to kind of give you a sense of that, like my first chapter was the last chapter I wrote, you know, um, and, and um, the last chapter, um, which kind of like pulls together kind of a, a lot of these cosmic otherworldly threads um, was a failed novel that I wrote in grad school that like, I didn't want to let go of, you know, and I was like, I, I want to do something with this. And, and I kind of sort of injected it into, into this narrative. Uh, I have a drawer full of pieces that, are unpublished and (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what, and I'm always thinking, why, what, what am I going to do with that? Um, So how did you do the research that was necessary for the book? Oh, I mean, some of it was just, you know, like I remember reading an interview with the writer, Laura Vandenberg, and somebody asked her about like, how do you write all about all these like worldly places? And she was like, Wikipedia. And, you know, to be upfront, it's like a a lot of it, and and a lot of it, you know, was just internet research, but some of it was on the ground research. You know, when I was living in Japan, I got to travel to some places and, you know, looked into like, you know, um, went to like a funerary, funerary mortuary expo, you know, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was just internet research, a lot of time, um, sometime in virtual reality, just kind of like immersing myself in different places to kind of get a sense of like, what is it like walking around in a Siberian, you know, in the Siberian tundra? Like, I'm not going to go there, you know, necessarily, especially during COVID, but um, I could, you know, come close at least with with technology um i spent a lot of time on the nasa um exoplanet um website as well so yeah just mostly internet research some on the ground kind of just going to like conferences and things of that nature emailing scientists um but um yeah i tried not to um my research process is that i want to make the information organic i want it to to kind of sort of be part of just my knowledge base. So when I'm actually writing a story, I'm not tempted to kind of just include things that don't need to be in there. Um, it, it's it's only there because the character needs it to be there. Right. You're not referring to your notes. Yeah. Every, no, yeah. no, that's actually, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I use the same technique. If I can't remember it, it's not significant enough to yeah. be in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it must be very strange to have your work become so suddenly relevant because as you say the book was planned was conceived long before covid yeah and so what has that been like well it's been 
it's been a ride for sure. Like, you know, when my agent, you know, was said, we're ready to kind of go out with this, you know, it was the very early days of COVID in 2020. And, you know, we, we had the conversation of like, should we wait? Should we go out with this? You know, what we don't know what the reception is going to be. I think ultimately we decided to, you know, submit it, um, you know, shop it to publishers because if we didn't, um, like one, I was just like, I wanted, I was ready. Like I've been waiting for this for so long, but if we didn't go out with it, there, there would be a chance that somebody else would come out with a book, you know, that was like this and that, that I would be kind of suddenly playing a second fiddle to that. Um, so we went, we went out with it. And unfortunately, um, we were very careful with our talking points. We wanted to make sure that whoever we partnered with understood that this wasn't like, you know, this wasn't Dustin Hoffman and Cuba Gooding Jr. saving the day in a helicopter or something. And it, it wasn't outbreak. It wasn't like the hot zone. You know, the, the virus was part of the backdrop, but it wasn't the core. And so the, the you know, our editors at HarperCollins, at William Morrow and Bloomsbury, I think both got that. They understood that it was ultimately about community and connections and it was transcending the moment. And um, yeah, I mean, I think kind of, you know, once we had those partners, um, we were kind of, you know, doing the hard work of making sure that, you know, that message was part of the marketing. It was part of the, you know, revisions in the book. Um, and, you know, over the past several weeks since the book has launched, um, I've been heartened that I, I would say the large majority of people, you know, even readers that have no connection to me whatsoever, um, understand that that this isn't like a plague novel with a capital p um it's much more akin to a station 11 than than anything else so. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. did you enjoy the editing process i mean i'm saying this is someone who's yeah. had a, a published books and mm -hmm. it's always rather shocking when oh, somebody yeah, asks yeah. you to change something or even uh, yeah, a lot I, of things <laughs> yeah um like i mean i had been working on um, developing the novel with my agent for, you know, a little while. And, you know, I think once I sold it, I knew that work, there was going to be work ahead um, just in terms of, you know, um, uh, shoring up, I think, the evolution of the world and making sure that it does feel more novel-esque. Um, I think the editing, yeah, I think I became a better writer just, to, you know, from the editing process. I just became much more aware of, like, how collaborative publishing a novel with like a large publisher is like you're the writer it's your work but like it's a huge team of people that's making it happen as well um so that was something that was just very eye-opening and i think educational uh for me but yeah I, I love the editing process i think i've just learned a lot about my my own process of what i'm capable of like i you know if if you know somebody's putting the fire to me i can crank out work you know um so I'm, it's good to know that about my capabilities um, because, you know, I, I procrastinate a lot <laughs> like, like anybody else, but, but um, I, it's good to know that I can actually crank out work if I really need to. Um, but yeah, when I, when my editor at, at William Morrow first gave me her edit letter, it was a little daunting. I'm not going to lie. It was daunting. It was like a 15 page something edit letter and then like 800 comments, you know, that had to resolve. And like most of the comments were, you know, pretty slight, but some of them were like, oh my God, this is like, <laughs> this is an overhaul. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, the book, you know, is, um, you know, ended up much better, um, you know, for, for that dialogue with, with very smart and attentive people. It's always very nice when somebody who knows what they're talking about pays a lot of close attention to your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And yeah. I've received those edit letters as well. And mm -hmm. I, I, they're always very bracing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my, my experience has been that editors have done great, great 
work with my, my work and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very grateful to them. I've also had the experience of editing books myself and it's, I don't find it a particularly pleasant one to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've done it. So there's something called climate fiction. Yeah. I didn't really yeah. know this. Um, and maybe you're not comfortable talking about it. I don't know. And maybe you don't even consider your book climate fiction. What, mm-hmm. what is it and how does your book relate to it? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I guess, um, I, I guess I would sort of, you know, say that my book could be considered climate fiction, or at least climate fiction adjacent. Um, you know, the virus that's, um, and it's, it's an otherworldly virus. It's a very strange thing, but the virus is unleashed in part because of um, climate change. You know, the permafrost in Siberia is melting, and that uncovers this ancient girl that harbors this this virus. Um, and there are nods along the way throughout the novel that shows the evolution of the world, you know, through the climate crisis lens. There are increasing wildfires, there's sea level rise, there are efforts at mitigating um, global warming. Um, you know, so so all of that's present in the novel, and how could it not be? I mean, like, we're living in this world now. Um, so climate fiction, for me, I, I, I teach a climate fiction, of course, and have been for, oh, for cool. a few years. All right, all now. right. Um, okay. And, and um, I'm part of this community at St. Olaf called the Environmental Conversations, which is just like a sequence of courses for first years. Um, so climate fiction is essentially, I mean, it's not, an, it's not a new genre by any means. It's, it's maybe a newer term, but it's essentially fiction that, you know, um, acknowledges and enters into a dialogue with the climate crisis, um, with human reactions to um, climate catastrophes, um, to exploring potential solutions to kind of like what if distant future. Um, you know, so there's, you know, it runs the gamut from, you know, a book like Nathaniel Rich's um, uh, odds against tomorrow, which kind of follows this corporate risk assessor, and suddenly <laughs> New York City is like kind of under this deluge of this flood, um, and you know, sort of just shows like what might be possible, you know, um, with sea level rise and how humans react to that kind of catastrophe. And I think that book, I think, sort of really reminded like if you're reading, if you if you're from the East Coast at all, probably reminded folks a lot about uh, Superstorm Sandy. Um, and then it kind of, you know, from a more realistic bent, you know, you might have books like mine that kind of like, you know, play a little bit more with the speculative, um, or, you know, see, you know, more extreme solutions of like colony or, you know, generation starships that, and then that's the core focus of the book. Um, but for me, I think the climate fiction is very important because it allows people to reflect on, um, not only what's going on today, but it allows people to um, consider um, the importance of small actions, um, community, mm-hmm. empathy, um, in addition to sort of technological, sociological, you know, financial considerations. But for me, um, the climate fiction that really engages me is is the ones that focus on small human moments, and that's something that I hope is a takeaway from my book is that. You know, empathy is important. Connect connectivity and community is important because if we don't have those things, um, you know, we can do we can you know engage in tech, with technology or other types of solutions, but we're still going to be steeped in old systems of inequity and um, prejudice um, and systems that honestly you know seek to exploit our planetary resources. Um, so there's a sea change, I think, to some degree in my novel that is embracing that hope and 
love of our fellow human being. I mean, it is interesting. I'm a historian, so I say it's interesting uh, when you can see writers responding to a significant epochal change. And I just two just two quick examples. There were a spate of books written after World War One because the war was so catastrophically wrongheaded in every way. And I'm thinking about remarks all quiet on the Western Front. And then after 1945, there was a whole spate of books about the threat of nuclear annihilation. And you, a book like Failsafe, the name the author of which I cannot rem- remember, but there were a spate of books. And I think that's a, a, appropriate and proper. <laughs> Writers pay attention to this. And these aren't necessarily political books. They're not taking sides. They're asking us to look at it in new ways. So, yeah, um, let, let me thank you for doing that. Um, but one kind of random question, and you don't have to answer it if you do. What, what is the earliest climate fiction? Because you said it's not a new genre. Is there a place where we can say it started? Again, I know this is not really... Well, um, I mean, if you really wanted to kind of go far back, um, I guess I guess the modern climate fiction sort of sees, he kind of focuses on the fact that humanity is part of the drive of, of climate change. Um but there, there, you know, if you go back as far as like Jules Verne, right, <laughs> like, I was thinking the same thing yeah, about Jules you know, Verne. You're, you're looking at books where you know there's, um, uh, I'm, I'm, the title's escaping me, but um, uh, there was, I think, um, a novel that he wrote that centered around, um, I think, Earth had somehow been knocked away from our uh-huh. orbit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um, you know, so it was dealing with climate apocalypse of sorts um so you know narratives that played with you know climate change through non-human means have has been around for quite some time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and i would say yeah the drowned world by jg billard is kind of another one that i think is like getting closer to our modern sense Mm -hmm. sensibilities of climate change where we start sort of seeing kind of humanity reacting and kind of like sort of psychological and savage ways to a warming world. Yeah, that's just terrifically interesting. Um, We've taken up a lot of your time and I appreciate it. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? I am working on, um, or I should be working on, my second novel, a contracted novel, Girl Zero. And um, that's also going to be out with William Morrow and Bloomsbury. Um, It's essentially about a couple who lose their daughter, their young daughter, and in this world, uh, sort of fantastical uh, kind of cryptid creatures exist. They're rare, going extinct. And the father decides to replace his daughter with a shapeshifter. And so it's kind of an identity, journey of identity, where, you know, they're coaching this replacement daughter to be the girl they lost, all the while knowing, at least the father acknowledging that this replacement is not really their daughter, is forming their own identity, is becoming somebody else as well. Um, and you know, his wife is perfectly happy to live in the fantasy that their daughter never died. Um, so it's, you know, also a you know, story about grief. It's a story, it's a coming of age story. And there's also a little bit of a twist because when the father replaced his daughter with the shapeshifter, with a shapeshifter, he inadvertently created multiple copies and he had to kind of deal with that. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. We don't, we don't want to give too much away. You have to buy the book. Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Sequoia. Nagamatsu about his book, How High We Go in the Dark, and it's out from William Morrow 
now. You can go pick it up. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you've been listening to the Grinnell College Authors and Artists podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Sequoia, thank you. Thank you, Marshall.